We live in a world where symbolism is all around us. We see it in all kinds of places. We do things that are symbolic acts quite regularly throughout the course of our lives and even during our normal days. Uh, You see it at a wedding uh, when a father gives away a bride. This was just a chance to sneak that wedding photo in one more time. Uh, But as a father gives away his bride, I mean, he's technically not giving her away. Lauren had been living out of home for about five or six years by this stage. But there's a sense in which this symbolic act is acknowledging the change that's taking place for her, that she's now joining together with Andrew to be husband and wife. Exchanging rings is a similar thing, isn't it? It's a symbolic act. Uh, The rings themselves don't have any particular power. They don't have any legal standing, but they symbolise something for us. Uh, When important dignitaries arrive, when there's a big event on, what do we do? We roll out the red carpet. It's still a practice today that that shows how important this event is. It's a symbol, it's a symbolic act that takes place. Very often when major building projects start, there's a symbolic act at the beginning of that as well. Uh, Here's a former Prime Minister turning the first sod in a major building project for the Defence Forces. He's not really there to do any real construction work. You do know that, don't you? That he's only going to dig that spade in if he can get it into the ground. He's only going to do it once, turn over that one little shovel full of soil. There are symbolic things that happen around us all the time. We understand the symbolism of them. We don't see them as being the reality. We recognise that it's just a symbolic thing that's taking place. I mean, seriously, we'd think it was quite stupid if the Prime Minister took his coat off and said, cancel all my appointments for the next six months, I'm staying here until this job's done. He's not there to do real work, proper digging work. He's there as a symbolic act to say that this building project is now underway. Well, today we're coming to look at something in the Old Covenant where there was an enormous amount of symbolism attached to this. There was symbolism right throughout the Old Covenant, symbolic acts that took place regularly where people knew that this wasn't necessarily a reality. The whole sacrificial system was a case in point. The priesthood was a symbolic thing. But the place we see it most clearly, the writer says, is when it comes to the tabernacle. Throughout this letter, the writer has been trying to tell his friends that the Old Covenant has now been superseded. God has made a better covenant, as we saw last week, based on better promises in Jesus. The things in the old covenant were just symbols of what Jesus would ultimately come to do. But above all, he wants to impress on them, there's no going back to the old covenant. You can't go back to the symbol when the reality is here. In fact, It would be stupid to think that you could go back to the symbol when you have the reality. Jesus has come. You don't need the symbol anymore because you've got the real thing. As I said, what he deals with in this section is the tabernacle and the place that the tabernacle had, the symbolism that it had within the life of Israel. And he wants to show that Jesus is the reality. There is no place for the tabernacle or the temple. That was just a symbol and the reality has now come. I think it's really hard for us to actually 
imagine the significance that the tabernacle or the temple had in the life of Israel. We, we really don't have any buildings or structures or even monuments that have that central focus for us. I suppose there was a time when the town hall may have had that kind of a focus, that this is the gathering place for the community, this is the, the focus, this is the centre for us. But I'm not sure that it really has that place anymore. In Australia, I suppose to some degree, uh, the Parliament House is that symbolic place, that this is supposed to be the building that unites the whole of Australia, though they don't seem terribly united when you see broadcasts of the debates that are taking place from in there. But even this building itself, the symbolism of it is that the grass was placed over the top so people could walk right over the top of this parliament. The parliament doesn't sit above the people, it's there to serve the people. And the grass was supposed to symbolise that. That This is supposed to be a bit of a rallying point, but it doesn't really have that place in our society. But the tabernacle certainly did. The tabernacle was the structure that they carted round with them in the desert until they finally moved into Jerusalem and eventually built the temple. But the tabernacle quite literally stood at the centre of national life in Israel. You can kind of see it here that by the time they were marching through the desert, there were a million to a million and a half of the people of Israel. Uh, And right at the very centre of this camp was this structure, the tabernacle. Now, to understand the significance of it, you've really only, only got to look at the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus devotes one quarter of the book to describing how that structure is to be made and what it's to be made from. Now, think about that for a moment. The book of Exodus is the book that describes Israel's rescue from the land of Egypt. It's the book that deals with the most important events in Israel's history. It's the book where they're given the Ten Commandments. It's the book, it's the book that defines their covenant relationship with God. And one quarter of that book is devoted to describing how that structure is to be built. What materials are to be used, what it's to look like, what shape it's supposed to take. So why was this important? Why was this structure such an important thing in the life of national Israel? Well, it wasn't the materials themselves, it was just cloth and timber and some fine metals that were used in there. It's what it symbolised that was important. It symbolised that God was present with his people. It symbolised God dwelling with them. In a sense, this was God's tent among all of the other tents. When Israel pitched their tents, the tabernacle was to be set up first, then three tribes were to to set up their tents on the north, three on the east, three on the west and three on the south. The whole structure cried out to them that God is at the very centre of their life. The tabernacle was probably around about half the size of a football field. It was about 40 metres long and 25 metres wide. That tent itself, which was where God was thought to dwell, though they knew he didn't actually live in there, that he's the God of the whole of creation. He's not going to be confined to some tiny little tent. But the place where God symbolically dwelt was in that tent. 
that measured about 15 metres by about 5 metres, and it was divided up into two rooms. We, we heard that at the beginning of our Bible reading. There was the holy place, and that was the area that priests would come in and out of quite regularly throughout the course of the day. But then at the end was the most holy place. And this was literally where God was symbolically dwelling. The ark was in there. And the priest was only allowed to go in there once a year. On one day of the year, he was allowed to approach God in that place. Now, a whole lot of this symbolism is trying to drive home the point that God is a holy God, that he can't tolerate sin, that he's not going to put up with sin. And that you don't approach God on your terms, you don't decide what God will get from you. God tells you clearly what it is that's required. I mean, it's powerful imagery. It's serious business approaching God. Some people tend to think that what happened at the temple or the tabernacle would kind of be like what happens here at church on a Sunday morning. But nothing could be further from the truth. Only the priests were allowed to go into that structure. It was curtained off. You couldn't even see in there from the outside. Uh, People would gather in that outside area, but they certainly weren't allowed to go inside of that structure, what was the tabernacle. Only the priests were allowed in there to make sacrifices and to perform their duties. And only the high priest was allowed to go into that most holy place. The tabernacle stood as a reminder that they were God's people, but it also stood as a reminder that sin was the great barrier between the people and God. But again, all of this was only a shadow, a symbol of what was ultimately to come. Very often when they build a new building, uh, particularly larger buildings in the city, uh, they'll construct a scale model so that we can get some kind of an idea of what the building is going to look like. Uh, That happened, Jornutzen put together a scale model of the opera house so that we could see what this building was going to look like. And the models can often be very impressive, but they don't compare to the real thing, do they? I mean, if you've got the scale model and then you've got the real thing... One of them truly is awe-inspiring and the other one's a scale model. I mean, it really is far more impressive to see the real thing. And a scale model can never give you a sense of the grandeur of being inside of that building. Well, this tabernacle may have been the centre of national life in Israel, but it was just a scale model, a symbol of a greater reality that would come. And the sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle, well, they were just symbolic as well. The sacrifices in the tabernacle didn't deal with sin, as we're going to see in the passage from Hebrews next week. And those offerings didn't really clear people's consciences. But what they did was point towards the real thing, just as a scale model does. It points towards the reality that is to come. The writer said back in chapter 8 that there were earthly priests who worked in an earthly tabernacle. Chapter 8, verse number 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. 
That's why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. I don't misunderstand what the writer's saying there. He's not saying, oh, they've got one just like this in heaven as well. That's not what he's saying at all. The tabernacle symbolised the real thing, the place where God really dwells with his people, the place where God's throne really is, where Jesus genuinely does serve as the high priest. A little further on in chapter 9, verse 24, he says this, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. See, the tabernacle was a symbol of how man was to approach God. It was a symbol of the relationship that we have with God. But Jesus is the reality. Jesus made a sacrifice, not with bulls or goats. His sacrifice was himself. He gave his own life to pay for our sins. He shed his own blood to make it possible for us to be forgiven. When you hear the writer talk about the tabernacle and the temple in these pages, I mean, it's really obvious that it's come to an end in Jesus, hasn't it? Jesus even said that the temple had come to an end, that it was no longer needed. You could now turn it into a Bunnings, if you like, because it has no use. This is what he said to his, or this is what it says in uh, in John's Gospel. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. See, why would you want a symbol of God's presence with his people when you've got Jesus, who is God present with his people? Why would you want a priest to symbolically deal with sin when Jesus has come to really deal with your sin? Why would you want a priest to symbolically enter into God's presence when we have Jesus who stands in God's presence on our behalf? When you go and see a movie, they give you a ticket. Uh, you go to the counter, you pay your money, you get your ticket. I, this is not a movie that I saw, nor one that I would encourage anyone to see for that matter, but it is a picture of a ticket. Uh, if you were to get your ticket, could you imagine that you walk over to that person who's going to take your ticket and tear part of it off? If you said to them, you know what, I think I might just go and sit in the coffee shop and look at the ticket. I mean, the ticket's just a symbol of the movie that you're going to go and see, isn't it? It's not the reality itself. It's the thing that will get you in there, But it's just a symbol. I mean, you'd be crazy to spend two hours sitting in the coffee shop staring at the ticket when the movie's playing right there and you can go in. Well, that's what the writer tells his friends as well. The old covenant finds its reality in Jesus. The priesthood, well, the reality is Jesus. Sacrifice for sin, the reality is Jesus. The tabernacle, well, the reality is is Jesus. 
They're wanting to go back to the old covenant. But why would you want to settle for the symbol when the reality is here? Now again, as I've been saying all the way through looking at Hebrews, our danger is not that we're going to slip back into Judaism. I mean, we didn't even come from Judaism to begin with. So that's not the danger that we face. But people still can get confused by old covenant ideas and they can try and sneak them in as though they're still a part of church life today. Let me give you a couple of examples. The fact that there are some churches around today that have ministers that they call priests is at the very least a little confusing, but probably worse than that is actually quite dangerous. Not only is it wrong, but it's really undermining what it is that Jesus has come to do. Jesus is your priest. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for a cheap imitation. Don't settle for a symbol. We have the reality in Jesus. Another area where sometimes we can become a little confused is when it comes to church buildings. The Old Testament temple was all was often called the house of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong, church buildings are great, and I love this building. I think it's one of the nicest churches that I've ever been into. So I don't have a problem with church buildings, but don't confuse what it is. Sometimes people will talk about them being God's house. The impression that you get is that God dwells in the church in some way that he doesn't dwell elsewhere. Again, not only is that idea wrong, but it really undermines what it is that Jesus has come to do. We don't meet God in buildings. We meet God in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to enter into the very presence of God. Some people think that God is honoured by having priests who serve them in buildings that we call God's house. How can God be un- how can God be honoured by things that really undermine the work that He's done for us through His Son? How can God be honoured when priests think that they represent people to God, yet Jesus is the one who's standing there pleading on our behalf? How can God be honoured when we turn buildings into special places and fail to realise that we meet God in the person of Jesus? But I want you to notice what it says in this very last verse. And, and you've got to understand this in the context of this whole book, really. But look at what he says in verse, no, verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more then will the blood of Christ, through who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, you've got to understand what he's saying there. Back in the old covenant, there was one small group of people, the Levites. They were the only ones who could say that they served God. They were the priests. They were the priestly order. They alone were allowed to go into that holy place and serve God in there. But do you hear what he's saying here? We serve God. If you have your trust in Jesus... You have that privilege. 
of serving God. Because of what God has done for us in his son, we have the freedom to serve God. Under the new covenant, it's not just the priests who do it. It's everyone who trusts in Jesus. In fact, the New Testament talks about that priesthood of all believers. That every single one of those who trusts in Jesus serves God. We don't just serve God in special places or on special days or with special rituals. We serve God with our whole lives. We serve God in all that we do. We serve God with every part of our lives. What the writer's saying here is quite amazing stuff really, isn't it? Because of what Jesus has, has done, we are set free to serve God. Do you think of your life in those terms? Do you see your life as an opportunity to be able to serve God? I mean, it's great to be here this morning, but what about when you get home? What about Monday? What about Tuesday and Wednesday? How are you serving God on those days? Serving God doesn't require a special building or rituals or words. Serving God isn't something that you do for an hour on Sunday. Serving God is to be done with every moment of every day. Serving God is how we live. It's how we relate to others. We serve God with our words, by sharing with others the good news about Jesus. And we serve God with our deeds, by showing God's love to this world. Jesus has set us free to serve the living God. Let's make sure that we do live to serve him.